Turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 to 23. If it's your first time joining us, you're probably very confused right now, but that's okay. Uh, welcome to the service. We're really glad that you're here today. It is week seven of our study through the book of Colossians. The apostle Paul had been writing to this tiny city of Colossae, and he had been telling them about how big the, the Savior is that they worship and that we worship. And so our series title is called Little Church, Big Christ. The title of today's sermon is The Freedom of Maturity. And before we get into all that, I want to remind you all that today there is going to be a reading after the service. And so as, as much as, you know, service has already been elongated by our, our time together, I'm going to ask that it would be elongated just a tiny bit more. If you planned ahead, you can stay behind today. And what we're going to do is we're going to take 12 minutes about to read through the entire book of Colossians from start to finish as though hearing the letter for the very first time from the apostle himself. And then we're going to take some time to pray together over the things that we hear, the themes that we've been studying studying through, but then specific needs as the Lord leads. It's going to be a great time. So if you have time, please stay after. If you can't, plan on coming and doing the exact same thing on March 17th. That'll be the last time that we do this together, okay? March 17th. Let me pray for our time before we begin. Lord Jesus, thank you, God, for the work you have done. Thank you for the presentation of your word and the opportunity to uh, hear once again the, the gospel, um, which, which changes everything. Lord, the good news uh, centered on uh, your son, Jesus Christ, Father. Um, his, his life, his work, his death, his resurrection, and, and all of the ways in which we are reconciled to you and given a new life because of the work that you have already done. Bless this time that we have, God. I pray that it would be glorifying and honoring to you. And we lift all these things up to you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Any history fans? Yeah, I got a couple. The rest of you are about to get real miserable. It's going to be awesome. I love history. I love it so much. History is, it's, it's just, it's stories, you guys. It's our stories that mark the course of history. It helps us to learn. Oh boy, I, I'm, I'm not going to talk about it. Um, this, this is for all of the history buffs in the room right now, okay? I want to tell you about what a big year 1517 was to Christendom. Anybody know why? 1517. Martin Luther, hey, somebody got some points. I didn't hear who it was because they muttered. On October 31st of 1517, there you go. On 1517, the great reformer Martin Luther, at the time an obscure monk of an Augustinian order of the Roman Catholic Church, decided that he was going to change the world, although he didn't know it at the time. And I hardly think he intended to start the movement that he did. And he did so in an inconspicuous way. He did so by nailing 95 theses to the door of All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany. And for posterity, he sent out copies of it throughout Germany and, and, and you know, the, the world. And in these theses... One sentence at a time, Luther spelled out a series of observations that theologians and academics were just supposed to chew on, right? The monk just wanted to open up a conversation based on scripture about the things in the church that he loved, about abuse and corruption by clergy and, and about uh, plenary indulgences. If you don't know what those are, you're in good company. Don't worry. I, I can tell you about it later. And we can tell 
that Mr. Luther had no idea that his observations would start a or cause a stir because he sent copies to a wide range of clergy who had the inconvenient tendency of burning people that they deemed to be heretics. But also we know that he didn't mean to start a stir because his introduction to those theses read like this. Out of love for the truth and a desire to elicitate, great word, desire to elicitate it, the Reverend Father Martin Luther, Master of the Arts and Sacred Theology and ordinary lecturer therein at Wittenberg, intends to defend the following statements and to dispute them in that place. Therefore, he asks that those who cannot be present and dispute with him orally shall do so by the absence in, uh, in a letter. He literally tells them the medieval equivalent of zoom in, right? Send an email. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. So that, that, those are innocent words, you guys. Innocent words, and yet they did stir up a... And yet a stir did these theses cause. Writing like Tolkien. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> Many others shared the ideas of Luther, and so the ideas that he put out there stirred up a lot in the church. It stirred up things that had been festering for a very long time, and a movement was produced and rallied around him and in defense of him because he needed defense. He was soon running for his life. And we know on the other end of his story that God used this history and that man to produce some of the greatest reclamation of biblical truth in the history of the church. I am not exaggerating. Church, for the very first time in a very long time, people were reading their Bibles and they were doing so in their own language. It was a miracle. And it's absolutely fascinating that as they did that, some biblical concepts naturally became, to be, became more important to believers again. In fact, one of them became so important that, that people risked and paid their lives so that future generations would learn and cherish those concepts well. One of those concepts was Christian liberty. It was Christian freedom. And if you don't know what that means, we're going to talk about it a lot today in large part over the study of the next two weeks. Unsurprisingly, Martin Luther had something to say on Christian freedom. In fact, um, after he wrote the 95 Theses, he wrote a little pamphlet to the Pope, okay? To Pope Leo himself, the X I wrote. He's the 10th. Pope Leo the 10th in 1520, and in that document with the hope that the Pope would re read it and reconcile all of these forces that were sent against Luther, Luther proposes two principles concerning the freedom of a Christian that apply to us today. He said, A Christian is an utterly free man, Lord of all, subject to none. Say it again. A Christian is an utterly free man, the Lord of all, subject to none. He followed that up by saying, a Christian is an utterly dutiful man, servant of all, subject to all. A Christian is an utterly dutiful man, servant to all, subject to all. And he knew they sounded contradictory. He knew that those principles would make our heads spin. Freedom. 
Christian freedom, according to Scripture, according to the writers of the apostles, and according to the example of our Lord, was granted to those who live by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is a freedom that declares a person righteous, a freedom that grants a person salvation from the consequences of sin, a freedom that breaks the bonds of slavery that once shackled humanity under the rule of Satan and others and own flesh. And so in the heart of those who have received such grace, you can say, I am utterly free. However, as we're going to see in the next few weeks, that freedom is also a freedom that requires the obedience of the free man, that drives them to serve those around him in a way that reflects the form of the servant that that was taken on by our Lord in the flesh and on the cross. And so inspired by the cross, the free Christian declares as the apostle Paul did in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. Now, why am I telling you this? The first reason is because we're going to embark on a journey where we're going to wrestle with some really hard concepts. You know, today you're going to hear me say, you are not bound to the law of the Old Testament. You're free from having to obey the rules and traditions that men tell you to obey. Keep your eye out, in fact, for voices in the church and outside of the church that try to rule over you and tell you what to do because you are in Christ. Then you're going to feel all elated and empowered and joy is going to fill your heart because you're loved by God and you're, you're full of his grace. And so you're going to come back next week and next week you're hopefully going to feel this whiplash of me telling you all, what then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So you might imagine we're going to talk about the many ways that we're called to obey God individually and as a church, which includes obligations that we have to one another. And therein lies the struggle. Therein lies the struggle that we will perpetually experience on this earth as we seek to understand both our freedom in Christ and our obligations to his commands. Anyone confused yet? No, you're all got it. Okay, we're good. Sounds good. Because of what Jesus did, you are free, church. And you are free to obey. That's the tension we're going to wrestle with starting today as we take a look at some of the voices that we're seeking to take away the freedom of the Christian in the church of Colossae. That's the context. Some people were attempting to do that. Let's read Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 to 23 together. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. In questions of food and drink or regards to festival or a new moon or Sabbath. These are the shadows of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on and on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that's from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to the things that all perish as they are used, and according to the precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now, as I said, there, there are three ways 
and I might not have said that, there are three ways, uh, maybe you observe them, that the freedom the Colossians were experiencing in Christ was being subverted. Three ways. It is legalism, mysticism, and asceticism. Legalism, mysticism, and asceticism. A lot of isms, I'm sorry. And since these three methods were the nuance of the same type of behavior to strip the Christians of their freedom, what we're going to do today is we are going to define those terms. We are going to talk about how Paul uh, rebutted them, how, how he responded to them, and then we are going to save our application for the very end. Okay? Excited? Yeah, you are. Let's get going. In Christ, we experience freedom from legalism. Okay? In Christ, we experience freedom from legalism. Now, some of you are probably most familiar with this term as opposed to the other two. You might have even used it in your vernacular, right, to describe leaders or, or people around you that are, that are lording things over you. Um, and um, inside the faith, outside of the faith. Well, let's take a look at how Paul describes it in the context of this passage. We'll begin in verse 14. Therefore... <gasps> Every time we see a therefore, what do we need to ask ourselves? What's the therefore, therefore? Exactly. Nailed it. Let's go. In this case, the therefore could not be more important. This is a very important therefore. I'd remind you in verse 14 and 15, we, last week we read the climax of this section, right? We saw in the passage last week that Christ is the fullness of God. He is the means by which we have received a circumcision that is not of the flesh. It's a spiritual circumcision of the heart that has removed our dependence on the flesh and has sealed us in our salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so our sins are buried in death with Christ. And we were raised to a new life in Christ. And so Paul says what was accomplished on the cross is that you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside and he nailed those things to the cross. God disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. And so Christian... If you have faith in Christ as your Savior, if you know that you are in a sinner in need of a Savior, if you have believed that Jesus died on the cross with your sins so that by faith in him you might be seen as righteous before God, then you are now completely saved. 100%. Salvation achieved because of Jesus and not because of you. Amen? In fact, Paul says that the rulers and authorities of this world were disarmed by Christ in this action. And so the rulers and authorities have no grounds to condemn you before God. Church, when it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 38 and 39, this is what Paul's saying. He's saying, neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nothing in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Your salvation is a done deal, church. No more work to be done in saving you. God's grace is more than sufficient. And so, 
in our sanctification, in our Christian maturity, as we're talking about being built up and established in Christ, we know that that thing cannot happen until we are rooted in the truth of our salvation in Christ. And so we need to acknowledge the truth, therefore, as we begin today. So we can start out on the right foot as we figure out what's going on with these guys that are saying some things that Paul is actively warning against. He says, therefore, because of Christ... Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regards to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. When we're reading through that and we're trying to understand legalism, the first word that might pop up to us is judgment. It's an interesting word, judgment. There are people that are seeking to to judge the right standing of Christians before God. Based on Paul's recent declaration in verses 14 and 15, that whole entire passage, what we can tell is that these leaders, they're making judgments regarding these Christians' freedom and salvation in Christ. Hence why Paul is making such a big deal about those things before he launches into this discussion. We can look at verse 8 where Paul warns, see to it that no one takes you captive No one has your heart captivated by philosophies and empties of seat, by false wisdom, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits or principles of this world, and not according to Christ. Maybe we look to verse 4 where he wishes that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. And so we're getting to the end of chapter 2. And Paul has given us a little bit more information about these false teachers. The first thing he is saying is that they're using food and drink and festivals and new moon and Sabbath to judge and to condemn the people of God. You might imagine the preachers, the teachers that are doing this, saying things like, if you do not honor the rules and you eat the right things and you practice these traditions that I'm talking about and interpreting for you, don't look at your Bibles, then not even Christ can save you. So what's he talking about here? Why does he use food and drink and festivals and new moons and Sabbath? Well, Paul had referenced circumcision back in chapter 2, at the beginning of chapter 2, and and all the way in chapter 1, verse 13, we talked about how he used this specific Jewish imagery to, to describe how we've been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. It's supposed to move our minds back to the exodus and to the establishment of the kingdoms. And so given those types of passages that he's been writing where you most definitely had to have a background in Jewish tradition to understand the full meaning, what we can hypothesize is that when he's saying festivals and new moons and Sabbath, Paul is referring to the various holy days of the Jewish calendar. Likewise, when when Paul says food and drink, he may be referring to the dietary rules of the Old Testament, the things that said what is clean and what is not clean and given. That he just emphasized that our salvation is in Christ alone. What we are left to conclude is that the reason Paul is stressing a need to not be swayed by possible arguments, the reason he's telling people guard your hearts against those who want to take your hearts captive, it is at least in part because there are people among the Colossians that are now requiring obedience to the law or their interpretation of the law, rules, and regulations in order to receive salvation. And this is where we come to our definition. So if you're a note taker, you might want to write this down. It's, it's a little lengthy. You just, you do your best. The heart of legalism. This is what it looks like. It's a, a religion of human achievement. It's the insinuation 
that our right standing before God requires Jesus plus human works. Christians have been filled with Christ and they've been made complete in Christ for salvation, but now they're being told they need to return to the bondage of works in order to be saved. But Ben, you say, isn't the law of, or isn't the law from God? Wasn't it meant to be obeyed? You exclaim ardently. Paul has a response to this. He says, food and drink, Jewish festivals, new moons, the Sabbath. This is kind of cool. He says, they are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Church, do you know what he's talking about here? It's really cool. The key word in the verse is substance. It can be translated as the reality, but it literally means body. Okay, when you see the word body in scripture, it's the same word that's translated here as substance. And so the image that Paul's trying, yes, the image that Paul's trying to convey is of a light that's being cast and a body, the physical body of Christ that's creating a shadow that would not exist if the body wasn't there, that inevitably connects to the body. He's the substance. Without him, these things, they don't exist. He created them, and they point to him. The author of Hebrews reflects on a similar truth in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. He says, For since the law has but a shadow of good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Christians, the Bible as a whole definitively uh, proves that the Old Testament principles and laws and practices, they are a shadow that are pointing to the Messiah. They no longer have the prominent role that they did for the people of God in the past now that Christ has arrived and the mystery of God has been fully revealed. In fact, when placed in the proper context, what we're told is that the law is shown to anticipate the works of God in Christ like a shadow drawn to the body. No one has ever been able to earn their salvation. No one has ever been able to earn their salvation. They have either hoped in what God will do, or they believed in what God has done. So Paul went great lengths to refute that legalism in the church. We see other examples, like in Galatia, uh, there were Gentiles that were joining the church, and they were being told that they needed to be circumcised in order to be right with God. And Paul was not happy about that, to say the least. And so he writes to them, and in chapter 4, verse 9 through 11, he says, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Does that word look familiar? Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, verse 20. How can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid that I may have labored over you in vain, he says. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 and 4, he continues, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. 
Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. And you are separated, or you are severed from Christ. Who are you who would be justified by the law? You have fallen away from grace. Referring to the ceremonial laws and the regulations. Referring to these things that people were enslaving themselves to after having accepted the truth already. But Paul was not invalidating the law. He knew that in Christ the law and the prophets had been fulfilled. Jesus himself had said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I do not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In Jesus, the ceremonial laws find their significance and fulfillment. In him, all the moral requirements before God have been completed. And so for any man to use them to cast judgment... For any teacher to seek to obligate Christians to their man-made interpretations of God's standards away from Christ, away from our salvation in him, for anyone to uh, emphasize any tradition over the commands of Christ, first and foremost the command that he gave us to repent and believe in the gospel. Paul tells us this is an attempt to sever believers from Christ and to dissuade them from the effectiveness of God's grace. And so... Christian, in Christ we have been freed. And the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands has been paid. And Paul wants us to understand that no more work is required in order to be saved. This is an argument Paul presents to us today. And as I said, we'll leave our application for the very end. That's legalism. Let's talk about mysticism. The second practice that creeps into the church, which Paul refutes, is this. In Christ... We experience freedom from mysticism. Okay, that is the truth. It is what they were preaching against. In Christ, we experience freedom from mysticism. Okay, mysticism might not be a word that you're familiar with. It can be defined as experiential pursuit of a deeper or higher religious experience. It elevates human intellect, natural senses, internal truth, feelings, Intuitions and other internal sensations more heavily than what is objectively found in God's word. What does that mean? That's a quote. For as long as the church has existed, there have been those among us who have claimed a special revelation apart from God's word who claim to have authority by means other than what God has given us by the power of his Holy Spirit through the word of God. How could that have possibly found its way into the church of Colossae? Verse 18 answers that question for us. It says, let no one disqualify you. Let's stop there for a second. Again, the key word here is quali- or disqualify. It means to keep someone from gaining a prize. And I say again because this word is really, really similar to the word that he uses for judge, okay, in verse 16. Disqualify is a unique word. It's found only here in the New Testament. And it is fascinating because the literal translation of the beginning of this verse is let no one act as umpire against you. So, church, 
you're witnessing the origin of our understanding of the word umpire. Like baseball ump, all right? Man, some of you, your ears just perked up and this is the first time you checked in. Welcome back. My name is Ben, I'm your pastor. Let me ask you all a question. When does an, or excuse me, when, what does an umpire do? Baseball fans, what does an umpire do? They judge. Okay, what else? Ball, strike, out. Exactly. What else? They keep it fair, right? They arbitrate. Listen, they watch the game closely. They enforce the rules and they arbitrate matters of play even when we don't like that arbitration, right? I was doing that at 8 p.m. last night and I thought my wife was going to kill me. Now, umpire really wouldn't sound all that bad for a church leader. Um, Aren't elders, for example, aren't they appointed for the purpose of leading and correcting and teaching, right? Shouldn't there be voices in the church that arbitrate and ensure that the church is operating properly? Doesn't sound too mystical yet to me, you argue. Well, the heresy is always found in the details. Guys, the heresy is always found in the details, isn't it? The word disqualify is translated that way as disqualify opposed to umpire. Because as we continue to read, we begin to understand that there is a problem with these self-appointed umpires. It says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on and on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by their sensuous mind. Church, Paul reminded another church, the Corinthians, of a universal principle for all believers in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. This is what he said. He said, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. He was talking to our mentality and pursuing after the salvation that we have already received in the process of what he is doing to glorify us, to sanctify us. There's an objective. And we see the threat that is being uh, uh, put out there by these self-appointed umpires is that they are trying to keep the Colossians from obtaining a prize. The prize is their salvation. And they are to run as one who seeks the prize, but these mystics are getting in the way. Let's talk about how. They're creating barriers, aren't they? Between Christians and between God based on mystical practices. These false teachers, these mystics are seeking to disqualify believers, even non-believers who are hearing the truth through the filter of their lies by requiring them to practice asceticism, which we're going to talk about in a moment but also the worship of angels. Let's focus on that for a second. Let's try to understand what worshiping of angels means. Um, Historically, back to history, I'm sorry. Historically in this region, there was a a pattern of worshiping angels that would continue long after Colossae was gone, uh, well beyond that time and in that region. In AD uh, 363, there was a church meeting held in Laodicea, the nearby town. And this is what they said. They said, it is not right for Christians to abandon the church of God and go away to invoke, to worship angels. So we see something's going on in that church. And likewise, we know from historical documentation that the archangel Michael, so an angel, an actual angel of the Bible, was being worshiped in Asia Minor as long as or as far as 739 A.D., 
So a long time. So we can say, based on those historical accounts, we can, ba- we can base it just on the time that Paul spends in this letter refuting them, that Paul is likely pointing out that these principalities and powers that he keeps harping on are things that people within the church are attributing their worship and their devotion to instead of worshiping Christ. But not only that, it gets worse. These false prophets, they're declaring to have seen visions, okay? They're declaring to have authority to rule over the church based on angelic powers, based on their vision. And we don't know their motive for sure, but Paul says that these false teachers are puffed up without reason, according to the sensuous mind, which literally means according to the flesh. And so we know, based on our earlier text in verse 11, the flesh was supposed to be put off in the circumcision of Christ. We also know that these false voices were characterized by their reliance on empty wisdom and human traditions and worldly principles. And so the overwhelming evidence of just this chapter is that these false prophets derived their wisdom from the world. They derived their power from the world. And so they derived their desires and their motives from the world as well. They're proving that they don't belong to Jesus. But see, the most disturbing implication, I think, of these mystical practices is not the motive necessarily, but the inclusion of the worship of angels, right? The reliance on sources other than God and his word to derive power and authority. You know, we went through the last chapter of Revelation, and you saw the image of John just taken up in the glory of God, throwing himself down at the angel's feet. And what does the angel say? Don't worship me, worship God. He's the only one worthy of worship. And so there would be no angel that would give a vision that is from God that would say, worship me instead of God. It's no coincidence, for example, that Satan, the ruler of this world, is described himself as a fallen angel. And it's no coincidence that his main goal and motivation is not just to destroy the people of God, but to entice them to worship him instead. Here comes the controversy. There have been many heretical movements that have derived their wisdom and revelation from supposedly being given revelation from angels. The example of the movements of Muhammad and Joseph Smith, they both started with revelations supposedly given to them by angels, church. And in speaking, we don't know. There's no indication whether those men or the men of Colossae were speaking from their own power and vision or truly from the power of the the false angels that they worshipped. All we know is that the legacy of, of their revelations are that people in droves, millions of people chose to follow them instead of following God. And so their legacy ultimately serves Not just themselves, but the power of the prince of this world. And that should be disturbing. Paul's rebuttal to this mystical movement is that he says, mysticism ignores the head. This is the main problem with it. They hold not, or they do not hold fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Church, they don't hold fast to Christ. Christ who created all beings, mortal and angelic. 
Christ, who put rulers and authorities, including demonic angels, to shame, according to Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. Christ, in whom there is no angel or principality or power that can separate us from the love of God. Christ, who is the head of the body, the rule and authority of all of it. Christ, who comes first, who is preeminent, in whom the fullness of what is needed for our salvation and our sanctification and our glorification is held. And Christ, in whom the body, according to verse 19, derives its life and its growth. It says Jesus is the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments. It grows with a growth that is from God. The illustration that Paul's making is very clear. He's saying without Christ, life and growth, it will not happen. In fact, without Christ, a part of the severed body from the head will wither and it will die. His rebuttal is simple. He said God desires that his people would grow and be rooted and be built up and be established in Christ and be giving their praises to him for the work that he has done and is doing. And what these mystics are ultimately doing is showing that they're not doing this from a a desire to bring glory to God, not doing it from a desire for the people of, of God. They're not even doing it for the angels of God. They're doing it to puff themselves up to make themselves greater in this world, to gain a foothold in God's church, to create a following, to achieve power, to lord that power over others, and they're doing it because they have a mind of the flesh. Church, in Christ, we have freedom from the powers of this world. We have freedom from the people who seek to serve them. Legalistic and mystical voices have sought to enslave the church from its very beginning. Let's take a look at this final infiltration of the church. The third truth is that in Christ, we experience a freedom from asceticism. Freedom from asceticism. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, this is verse 20, why is if you were alive to the world do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not Taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. I'll draw your attention to verse 23. We see our second instance of the word asceticism. So let's talk about that word real quick. In the final verses of this chapter, that's how we really get a good understanding of what it means. Um, Asceticism, or excuse me, the ascetic is one who lives a life of rigorous self-denial. It's one who lives a life of rigorous self-denial. And so asceticism would be the practice of devoting yourself to extreme rhythms that promote the type of self-denying avoidance of all forms of indulgence. Shout out to Siri. Thank you, Google, for that definition. You guys, are you still with me? All right, cool. I heard the the subtle chuckles. That's okay. Interesting fun fact, okay? The word translated as asceticism, I was was telling Keith this earlier. It means lowliness and humility. So weird. You might say that sounds really strange, right? Humility would be considered a virtue for Christ and his people, right? 
You'll quote the next chapter to me in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, where it says, Put on then as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And that is, in fact, the same word in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, that you see in our passage in verse 23. And so what gives? You know, its meaning is not found in the language. It's found in the context. It's found in relationship to the regulations that they are imposing on other Christians. What are they doing? They're telling other Christians, don't touch that. Don't handle that. Don't taste that. They're lording over other Christians. Their ascetic practices and they're restricting food and drink to believers, perhaps even in the name of the law. And in promoting religion that they've made by themselves that did not come from God, Paul's saying, listen, they're showing a type of false humility. They're telling a type of false lowliness that grovels before man and the created things of this world in order to, 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 to gain favor and approval while mocking humility, true humility of a person who is relating their true lowly connection or a condition to God in his glory. Notice, Paul says it's based on self-made religion, you guys. It's, made on, it's based on human precepts and teachings. The words of these teachers appear wise on the surface, but what seems to be wisdom is actually only a voluntary service. It's a means by which men are choosing for themselves of their own option what to do without authority from God. And so we're told that these men followed the elemental principles of the world. They followed their ABCs of worldly religion. They followed all the rules and fundamentals that dictate all of those religions. They even followed the powers behind them, natural and supernatural. And in verse 20, Paul approaches this to the church. He, he rebukes this by saying, Christians, you have died to the world, to the elemental principles of the world. You are alive in Christ. And so they know that while they are alive in this world, they are not to be alive to this world. And they are, in fact, to put to death everything that is earthly in them. And we're going to unpack that so much next week, you guys. And so the contrast of these ascetics could not be more clear. We're shown in verses 20 to 23 that they're of the world. They're captivated by wisdom and traditions and principles. And they're elevating the perishable things of this world instead of seeking after the inheritance of the imperishable Christ. Perhaps they forgot what it says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. According to his great mercy... God has called us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for them. These teachers are promoting human tradition with no authority from God, and they, they sought to appear wise based on the appearance of their holiness, while they actually did nothing to prevent the motives and desires of their own flesh. And so perhaps they had forgotten or did not know that in Galatians chapter 5, they are to walk by the Spirit so that they would not gratify the desires of the flesh. And again, worst of all, the reason that Paul is writing 
was that these aesthetic men, or ascetic men, these mystic men, these legalistic men were not only set up on building up their own piety and their own power base. They didn't only look after the glory of themselves and forging their power and seeking up their own puffed up sensuous minds, but church, they sought to judge and to disqualify the people of God. They desired to snatch away the prize and the joy of salvation that we have in Christ and to deny the inheritance of God to the people of God. Paul implores the church not to listen to any of these voices. In fact, he says that they would contradict the grace and the freedom that we have in Christ. And so that, that's it. That's the summary of legalism and mysticism and asceticism. Let's talk about the application. Let's talk about what that means to us today. We have a good picture of what it looked like in the church in Colossae. What does that mean to us? I said at the beginning, our time today was going to be spent trying to understand our freedom in Christ, right? The freedom that we have. And so I would say that the application is found in acknowledging that these voices still exist today, church. They still continue to work around us in the world, perhaps even in the church today, that seek to actively jeopardize the freedom that you have received by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The lesson of legalism is that we ought to know that God's commands are intended to be a blessing, not a curse. In Christ, we are free from the obligations of the law. And so although the Old Testament presents this wonderful picture of God's work of salvation, and it is an accurate representation of his holy standard, ultimately we are free from the ceremony of the Old Testament and set apart to be holy according to the new covenant in Christ that absolutely we are going to be unpacking next week. And so as a people, we need to commit, you can hear it again, to know God's word, to know it so that we can be free to obey it, so that we would be on guard against the people who would weaponize it, who would cause you to stumble and surrender the gift of salvation that you have been given. By grace you have been saved, not by works, so that no man will boast. The lesson of the mystics that I hope we see today is that mysticism ultimately seeks to build us up. It does not seek to build Christ up. Mystics can be recognized by this church. We can look around and we can see them based on the people who are putting reliance on the authority of supernatural and experiential things instead of saying and doing things that are found and grounded in God's word. Church, we can be encouraged. We can be encouraged because according to God's wisdom and by his great grace, he has given us both his Holy Spirit and his word inspired by the Spirit so that we can test the truth of false prophets and we can diligently study those words to recognize them. In Christ, the mysteries of the gospel are fully known. And they are a blessing and they are not a curse. And so if we find that there are voices in this world, Lord forbid, if we find voices in this church that are making demands based on revelations claimed to be from God, we know that the first authority to which we ought to turn is the word of God. It is the word himself. And to the freedom that we have been given in the word by Jesus Christ. And the final lesson, I think, from uh, these ascetics that we could learn today is that true humility, true loneliness, and the actions that display it, 
They come from a place of knowing who God is and desiring to respond accordingly. Now, this is a really big one because this is what, going, it's what helps us discern the difference between what we have received and what we are supposed to do. Those who know Christ have been radically changed by Christ church. They've been given a new heart. They've been given everything. And so in him, we have a freedom that can never be taken away. Our response to that gift of God is that we would cling to it. Not to things, not to rules, not to restrictions that appear wise, that ultimately have no, no chance of stopping our flesh. And so the truly humble among us, what we ought to display in our lives, we know that Jesus had to die for us so that we would be dead to the flesh. We know what it will look like to be humble. We know that in the actions of the false prophets, they will call the world to marvel at their actions. They will not seek self-sacrifice. They will seek all the glory, all the honor, all that is due to the king that rightfully would have given it to them. So last week I mentioned that the Lord had told us to beware of false prophets. I want you to be encouraged today that he told us false prophets can be recognized. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 15 through 20, he said, Beware false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from the thorn bushes or figs from the thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will know them by their fruits. Church, we can entrust this to God. He will do something about this, and he has empowered us by his spirit to recognize it in the world around us. Cling to Christ. We cling to his word. We'll be on guard for the voices that are seeking to take away our freedom in Christ. And we will always remember the prize that we have in Christ and hold fast to the way. In Christ, you are an utterly free man, Lord of all, subject to none. In Christ, you are an utterly dutiful man, servant of all, subject to all. Christ is all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this truth. Thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for the warning of it. God, thank you for the blessing of it. God, thank you for your spirit that gives discernment and allows us to see in the world around us both the work that is to be done and the forces that are risen up against us. God, give us hearts to be saturated in the grace that we have received in you. Lord, I pray that if there is anyone in this room that does not know you, that is not fully aware that your son Jesus uh, came to this earth, he is the Messiah, he, he taught accordingly, he died on the cross, having lived a perfect life for our sins, and he rose again to affirm his power to save us. He will one day return and make all things new. These are truths, and I pray, God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that anyone in this room that does not know this, that you would convict hearts.
that you would change people, Lord, and you would, you would have them declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. And in us who belong to him, God, would you commit these things to our men- memories, that we would have our heads on a swivel, but not in a sense of panic and not in a sense of, of suspicion, God, in a sense of trust, that you are in control, that you have determined our steps, God, that you will sustain us, that you have given us wisdom according to your spirit and in your word. Equip us, God, for the work of the ministry and allow us to be about the work of making disciples in your name, Jesus. We pray all of these things. Amen.